Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, boss. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing very well. I was having to think to myself earlier on, and I try and avoid labeling anything that I do a job because my whole life has really been a, a commitment to avoiding getting a job. But in some instances, I think you really have to go, well, this is a job because it's, you know, it's work, it's enjoyable, but there's thought and there's structure and there's, there's craft involved. And with this, you know, latest project, which I've begun to undertake, um, it's very much a job. And if it is a job, then you, good sir, uh, would be considered my boss. And I thought, how lucky am I, A, not just to have a boss like you, uh, but B, to be able to be in a position where I can interview my boss. How many people can say that? Turn the table around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, got to be honest with you that that it does make me feel uncomfortable and honored at the same time. I have staff that refer to me as my boss and uh, as their boss. And I just, you know, um, I just think of myself as a colleague most of the time, unless the hammer needs to come down. But, uh, (laughs) you know, we do what we do. Well, it's interesting for me because I haven't had a real job now since I was about 19. So we're talking 15 years and everybody that I do work with and indeed in some cases for are my friends i've been really lucky that i've gotten to really pick who i work with and for and everybody that i now refer to as a boss 
I use that term as a term of endearment for me. It was funny because when I grew up, I used to hate all my bosses. And it was strange because I always got on with teachers and with lecturers and I always got on with friends, parents and girlfriends, parents. So I've never had a problem with with elders. If anything, I look up to and respect and always want to learn from people that are older than me. But there's something about the workplace that I don't know, for me, just made me resent the person in power. And I don't know whether that would have been the same for you at all, because, you know, I'm reading through the amazing story of your personal life, your professional journey, and it seems like me to be characterized by this kind of renaissance man approach to wanting to take on multiple roles and multiple universes and bring various strands together, but also really to kind of be the master of your own destiny and carve out your own path. Would that be safe to say? And choose who you work with by default as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for better or worse, yeah, I, I do have a bit of an anti-authoritarian bent to my personality. I think in some ways that's probably an asset. In others, it, it tends to get me in trouble. Um, you know, the, the longer that we function as a company and the longer that I, I, um, I act as a, a person in charge of a company – and have employees and, and work with different people. You know, I, I just, I can't help but think that, uh, it would be terrorizing to have me 20 years ago as an employee now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, what an amazing background. And I want to go first of all, to the kind of early, early, early years in Minneapolis, which, you know, I guess most people will know as the home musically speaking of Prince, um, and I've just been informed by these, you know, thorough and thoroughly interesting notes that you sent through to me that your brother, right, was in a band who um, recorded out at Paisley Park, Prince's like home studio compound. Yeah, yeah. I have um, two older stepbrothers, uh, Joel Hansen and Jade Hansen, that uh, are 12 and 13 years older than me. And they they did a lot of recording. I mean, they're, they're like uh, born again. Christian pop musicians. Um, but you know, that whole scene in Minneapolis was very much intertwined with the Prince camp. Is that just because he's so, so, or was so larger than life? Like it's almost inescapable. Yeah. I think that there's an, an aspect of him being omniscient in the area, but you know, he was, uh, I didn't know Prince, uh, personally, but, from uh, my interactions and from people around me, you know, he just seemed like a great community figure that liked to contribute and bring a lot of great people along for the ride. I can't remember the exact details, um, but Bob Mould is from Minneapolis, right? He is. Well, he's from New York, actually, but he moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul to go to university, right. if I remember correctly. Because when Prince passed, there was all these different tributes from different people. And there was one, I can't remember the exact details of it, but I'm sure if people just Googled it, a beautiful, touching, kind of quite funny tribute from Bob Mould saying about experiences he'd had with Prince. And then obviously the, the other huge musical, well, I don't know whether huge would be the right term, but certainly important in the underground world and a band that I've always adored as just one of those stepping stone bands, I think, between hardcore 
and then grunge. And there was a few of those kind of bands because I think people who don't know about the history of American music will maybe think that bands like Nirvana just arrived from out of nowhere and exploded. But obviously the story is it goes back to the hardcore scene, doesn't it? And, you know, bands like The Replacements would have been for me, and maybe you could agree or disagree or shed some light on that, a key stepping stone in that evolution from the kind of basement, hardcore, underground DIY, nitty gritty punk rock roots music to then, you know, the world conquering internationally successful bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, etc. They were like the through line, weren't they? Bands like Husker Du, Replacements, Meat Puppets. Sure. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, there, I, I mean, that was a little bit before my time, but the, uh, the influence is obviously um, very prevalent. I, I love all those bands and grew up listening to them. I worked on a, a book with Grant Hart from Husker Du uh, for a number of years before he died. Hopefully that project still comes out. And, you know, it's just a, a, a great legacy of Minneapolis, among many other things that uh, I think, you know, I think some people realize it when they, when they think of Prince, but when they, when they get deep into the cultural influence of that city and that area, uh, most people are pretty surprised. Well, it's something that I've been learning a lot about whilst transcribing the interviews from my podcast for this book. You know, and obviously, I've obviously done these interviews myself, and so I was there for the conversations when they took place. But when you revisit them and you transcribe them, and they're almost like a, I don't know, just it's it's almost a new interview because you're reading it as opposed to listening to it and some of the kind of insights that i've been you know discovering that went perhaps unnoticed or slipped through the net the first time around have been giving me such an insight into american history and cultural history and underground music history and i didn't even really know the extent to which there was a real thriving minneapolis hardcore scene wasn't there and it was that the scene which really kind of kind of got you started on your your whole life's not just career trajectory but you know personal journey as well did it all really begin in those kind of punk rock hardcore diy basement shows in minneapolis when you were a kid absolutely i mean i was um i was the youngest person of the people that i hung around with uh most of the most of my friends were 5, 10, 12 years older than me. Um, and because of that, I got dragged around to a lot of really amazing shows. I mean, I was, um, when I look back on it now, it is really kind of remarkable that, um, A, at 14 years old, I was led into some of these places, but then uh, that older people in their 20s and early 30s didn't really think twice about having a 14, 15 year old hanging around. The social context of everything was what really brought me in into all of that. I mean, in Minneapolis, you have a lot of different intersections. I mean, at that time, from my memory of all of the, the crust punk profane existence uh, people and um, the intersections between that and what was going on in Scandinavia with black metal all the crust punk black metal stuff really crossed over. Um, for me, I was in the early nineties. I was, I was really into the, uh, you know, what was burgeoning with the amphetamine reptile noise bands. Uh, but those were all bar bands. So I didn't really hang out drinking with people in bars so much. So I, 
I musically, I was a little bit more into the Lookout Records melodic punk rock stuff. A good friend of mine, actually, Ian Winwood is his name. He wrote an amazing book on the whole 90s American punk scene called Smash. Uh, it's got a longer title than that as the subtitle, but the main title Smash. And it's all about that lookout scene and then Epitaph and Fat Records and, you know, Bad Religion, Green Day, Offspring, etc. All those bands. I'm also reading Duff McKagan's book at the moment, It's So Easy. And a big kind of part in the, in these, you know, localized scenes in all these cities was, was houses, wasn't it? Like punk houses that all had their own weird little names, their own almost micro universes. Um, tell me about the one which you were involved in. Perhaps you didn't live there, but you spent a lot of time there and went to shows there and stuff. The Scooby Don't House in Minneapolis. Tell me about this. No, sure. No, sure. I, I did live there. You uh, did. What, what a, age did you move there? I want to say it was probably 15 years old. Oh, wow. 15, maybe early 16. Um, memories a little hazy, but I was, I was definitely in my high school years. And um, so Scooby-Doo was a, uh, a pow, like a power pop, pop punk band from Minneapolis that uh, moved to Minneapolis from Wisconsin together as a band. And they uh, uh, rented uh, an old Victorian house that was run down 3525 First Avenue South and did shows in their basement. And there were corn roasts in the back and tons of amazing shows happened there. And uh, as I started to get involved with that group and uh, play with some other bands, um, their drummer, Matt Stokes, moved away suddenly. Hold on, their drummer was called Matt Stokes. Just, Matt Stokes, yeah. Man, that is. If I remember right. That is so close to me. Sure it's it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's Matt. He's gonna he's gonna kill me uh, if I get his last name wrong. But the uh, but I remember I remember Matt moving away. Um, to Oregon for some reason. I played drums in bands at the time and Scooby Don't A had uh, a room to rent in their house and and B they needed uh, a drummer for uh, an upcoming tour. So I did the two of them and that tour was the uh, Scooby Don't Dillinger 4 tour of 19 summer 1994. And 1994 uh, was obviously and- the year that Dookie came out, Smash came out. Grunge had kind of dried up and punk rock was the new worldwide phenomenon, wasn't it? I mean, did that trickle down to to the level of bands like you guys? And was that an incredibly exciting time? I mean, it would have been an exciting time at the age that you were at to be on the road touring and living that life anyway. But particularly in 94, when punk was like the in thing, did it make it especially, you know, exciting and amazing and well, it, it was definitely an exciting time. I mean, I was uh, really into bands like um, uh, Screeching Weasel, the Vindictives, a lot of the stuff that was happening in Chicago, Wine Press, the Meshuganas, um, in addition to the, the California stuff that was happening. I, you know, when when Dookie came out, uh, I, you know, I wasn't really, it wasn't that I was a snob about them going major or whatnot. I was a huge Jawbreaker fan when the Jawbreaker record came out on Geffen. I was really excited about that. So I don't, I don't remember being 
the type of fan that was uh, upset about things moving like that. But um, yeah, no, I don't, I, I wasn't so uh, uh, involved with the greater scheme of things. I was really immersed in this world of basement living room shows and whatnot. I, I do remember <clears throat> on the, um, on one of the Dookie Green Day tours, they were uh, having um, a Pansy Division open up, and we ended up uh, inviting Pansy Division to play our basement, and everybody in the house got really excited because um, uh, guys in Green Day might show up and play. Amazing. Uh, that's what I remember about from that time period. They never did. Of course not. But uh, the Pansy Edition <laughs> show was amazing. And the Queers came by and played that house as well, right? I love that band. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Queers. Yeah, Larry Livermore, the, uh, the Potato Man, um, other lookout people that were in Bumble Scrum. Uh, there was a lot of crossover between that. The Grups, if you remember that band that was former members of Blatt's. Um, and you know, a lot of that time, um, segued, I mean, I mentioned it to you just because more and more getting involved with book publishing, I'm realizing, um, you know, that there aren't really a whole lot of people in, in publishing that a are interested in that social history, b are knowledgeable enough to get involved. Um, but, you know, it provides a bridge between telling the, the stories that can't be told. And that's really why, um, you know, we're involved in publishing, that we find value in doing it, aside from trying to make a living and, and support our families and whatnot. But, um, you know, I think that's a unique perspective. And that's also something that I, that I communicate a lot with authors, whether they're musicians or not, that, you know, if you're if you have a particular experience and, and, you know, for lack of a better term or an expert in a, in a certain area, you'd be really surprised at how few people out there have the ability and the opportunity to tell that story. Yeah. I think that the quest a lot of the time and, and my show's a, a big kind of, I, I hope um, a champion of that as well is almost documenting, capturing uh, and trying to share these stories because they're not being, you know, given the platform to be read and heard about in more mainstream, even in like, you know, the rock press, most of the time from a journalistic standpoint, the line of questioning is the same. It's how's the tour? Tell us about the new record. And it's a promotional piece to sell, you know, either the, the upcoming run of shows that they have or the album which they have coming out. Whereas the interest for me is much more in documenting the history and the evolution. And that might be personally on an individual level, but then also the broader social context as well. And I also think that when you come from a punk background, I went to shows as a kid all the time as well. I think it instills in you, if you're a lifer, which some people are, I think you are, uh, well, you, are, you, you clearly are, um, it instills in you an approach so no matter what you do professionally there's always this kind of diy drive and and would you say that's something that you sort of took and ran with and has carried over beginning in your obviously educational work which then you know spiraled and splintered off into the publishing and book world that you entered but would you say that all of that makeup and attitude and approach kind of all came from punk rock and the things that you saw and learned as a kid growing up in that scene? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the older I get, the more I realize how much that has influenced me. Um, you know, I mean, half the staff of our office comes from um, somewhat of a punk rock background and, and just the DIY ethics. Sometimes that's something that we really struggle with communicating um, with authors and whatnot. People who don't have that background don't innately just go to certain mechanisms to market things or put things together. Um, so yeah, I think that that, that whole cultural influence is, uh, is really important. It's been a big influence on us. So what took you out to LA when you were 19? Did you finish high school? You said you kind of, you know, you're playing in no. drums in a punk band. You moved into a punk house at the age of 15. I'm assuming that school wasn't top of the list of priorities. Well, I, I love, I'm a book person first and foremost. I, I love learning. I actually love school. Um, but I just became very um, disinterested and, and not challenged as a kid. That matched with all of the other exciting things that I was doing as a teenager. Um, it just took over in a lot of ways. I had two high school teachers that, really were supportive and liked what I was doing, uh, that gave me credit, school credit as I was touring around with bands. And, um, in between touring with bands, I, you know, I, 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 I did a lot of, uh, hitchhiking by myself, uh, that, you know, I, I look back on all of that now and, and think it's absolutely insane um have you read but, the john waters book tyson where he breaks it into three chapters oh yeah and one's like his dream scenario of the hitchhiking across america one's his nightmare and then the third is is the reality have you read that i no i have not read that i've i've, I've read a lot of john waters over the years but I'll i can't remember you'll have to check it out it's basically he decides and it's fairly recently you know it was only maybe five six seven years ago he decided however old i am you know, it's either now or never. So I'm going to hitchhike across America and I'm reading it and he's, <laughs> he's describing these scenarios and I'm thinking, fucking hell. And then it's only into like the fourth chapter that I realize these are clearly made up because they get more and more outrageous. And yeah, the way he presents it is the first third of the book is his dream kind of wish list scenarios. And then the second is his nightmarish visions of what might happen. And then the third and final installment is the reality of what actually went down. And he did indeed hitchhike across America. Um, uh, and wrote about his experiences. And as you say, it's something now which seems so far removed from today's world, doesn't it? And so crazy and dangerous and reckless. But, you know, not even that long ago, it was kind of quite a popular way, especially in your country, of getting out and seeing, you know, the world and experiencing life. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, you're right. I mean, it, it seems absolutely crazy now, but it was more commonplace back then. I think, I mean, I don't really hang around with too many teenagers these days aside <laughs> from uh, my uh, buddies, kids and whatnot. So I don't know what the, what the pulse is there, but yeah, it wasn't, it didn't seem crazy to me at the time, but yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, later when I got into books and uh, the, you know, the book industry and whatnot and, and, Authors like uh, J.T. Leroy came out with trucker hitchhiking uh, stories and whatnot. 
you know, those are, those are the ones that really resonated and frightened me a great deal. I, you know, I encountered a lot of weird stuff in those days, but I also think I skated by uh, pretty safely compared to others. Well, it's also about that similarity to the punk rock scene, isn't it? Is a lot of that would have been dangerous and scary and at the same time exciting. That's well, what sucks you in at a young age, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I never, I never left my home in Minneapolis to hitchhike. You know, I always found myself on tour or traveling with an outfit or, or whatnot and then path cross and somehow I'm stranded in Tucson <laughs> and, or, you know, somehow I'm in the middle of, uh, middle of Montana with nowhere to go. And that's, you know, it, it's more of uh, the mother of mother of invention, um, which led me to do all that, all that stuff. But, you know, I, I'd be terrified if my kids did that. How did your parents feel about you moving out to LA? And and did you go there purely and simply because of the cultural heritage of that city? So the rock and roll music, cinema, literature, was it just like a beacon of culture to you that pulled you out there? Obviously you went to study at UCLA, but were you always going to go and study out in California, in Los Angeles and get yourself out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I came out to LA for school. To, to study ethnography at UCLA and in Cal State Northridge. Um, you know, I've always liked it. I've had a, a friendships and affinities with people in California. Um, in 94, 95, I remember touring out here and playing a, a house party show uh, with uh, the band Real Big Fish. I know them well. I've toured with those guys many um, times. Well, there you go. I, we were like the first band on a five band bill. I want to say just before they became really, really popular. Um, but it was that, it was that trip. I do remember, uh, driving by the, uh, sunset strip tattoo parlor. And, you know, I've always been a big fan of LA street rock, hair metal, uh, metal in general. So, you know, I knew these places just from the lore of being a fan of rock and roll. Um, and it was really that trip that when I left, I felt like I was leaving home. It's, so it's fascinating to me, the area of study. Um, I'd never even heard of ethnography before. So can you break down that term for me? First of all, what is that the study of? Sure. Yeah, it, it's really ethnogeography, and it's accepted in a in a in a lot of realms uh, of science and and education. But uh, it's also contested because it uses a method of participant observation. You know, and in scientific communities, if you participate in what you're observing, you're poisoning the well, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but that's really that's really the uh, the beauty of it is punk the, rock science and the history of, getting stuck in. It is, it is absolutely. And the, you know, I mean the history of it, I mean, you could classify Melville as ethnographic creative writing and whatnot, but really the, uh, the book that got me into it was this 
a book by William H. White from the 40s called Life in an Italian Slum, where he broke down this neighborhood in New York and gave everybody nicknames and types and, and described this uh, sub-community of people in such an interesting way. It's like a little time capsule. And, and then at, at the same time, I had the sociology professor who wrote this dissertation on high-pressure auto sales in the San Fernando Valley in the 70s. And he had four volumes of, of work on reference in the library, about 2,000 pages of, of great material. But, it, you know, it wasn't written like a novel. <laughs> it was just written to document things. And it was insane. It was like working at these car dealerships on Van Nuys Boulevard uh, in the northern side of, of Los Angeles, talking about doing cocaine, blowing people off the lot, manipulation <laughs> strategies, all these little uh, little things that were happening. And I just got so into that. And I remember talking to him after reading all four of those volumes, and he was surprised that I was even that I would even go that far and hold myself up in the library uh, to do that. And he said, well, you know, find something you can immerse yourself in and just absorb it. And as I was uh, driving around the days after that, I uh, glimpsed a lot of the outdoor LA newsstands that are all over the place and had an idea that, that's where I wanted to do that stuff. And, you know, I, what's interesting in this, I go into this with my, my own dissertation. It's called Where Particular People Congregate, an ethnographic study of the American Newsstand and its people. The, the LA Newsstand is really something unique. It isn't like a New York newsstand where people go there every day, get a paper, get some gum, whatever they're going to get, pack of cigarettes. It isn't like, being in Japan where people do the same things, I assume there are similar, similar elements in London. People hang out at these L.A. newsstands. Part of it, I think, is the weather. But, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon to see A-list celebrities talking for two or three hours with homeless people. And I just found that world so interesting and unique because the barriers are dropped. It's almost you know, it's like it's reverted. It's almost reverted back to that. It feels like a little bit now with this lockdown pandemic situation, because you know now there's nowhere to go. There's not these pubs, cafes, bars, restaurants. People are still out on the street, but there's nowhere for them to really congregate. So they are doing it outside shops and on road corners and something which you traditionally never see. Like usually, if you're on a street, it's because you're on your way from A to B, and you're not just there to kind of hang out in the moment in that spot and just, as you say, drink in life and experience. You know the, the culture of what's immediately around you. But I'm seeing a lot more of that now, and I find that fascinating because as you say it does away with all hierarchy and boundaries and barriers and it just kind of puts everybody on this level playing field of just humans talking to other humans doesn't it it does and i i love that and i also loved the fact that you know there was there's a lot of just natural anonymity yep um in that um i didn't realize this till later when i got involved with books that a number of my regular 
uh, newsstand customers, the ones that would at three o'clock in the morning bring me coffee. They would watch the newsstand while I went to use the restroom because in, in at those newsstands, it's all, at least from my experience, it's paid under the table, piss in a cup, 10 hours, <laughs> no break, all that kind of stuff. And so you really relied on your friends uh, out there on the street to take care of things and help you out. And, and I was surprised that a number of those customers uh, were notable authors that it wasn't until I was doing book events later when they walked in uh, to an event and they were like, what are you doing here? Why is the news guy working at the bookstore? <laughs> it's throwing my whole world out of sync. I mean, what a, faci- <laughs> what a fascinating segue. So you're studying and you decide to write this thesis, this dissertation on the activities and the kind of microcosms that surround these newsstands. So you're assumedly studying during the day and attending lectures during daylight. And then, you know, from whatever time of night until sunrise you're either working at or hanging around and observing activity and people at newsstands so basically the first question would be when are you sleeping or are you not (laughs) i'm not and it's funny i was just i was just reminiscing about this time period with uh somebody here at the office but it's the uh you know i was not sleeping very much if ever are you, um, are you using anything left. to help you through the day in that sense? <laughs> nothing, nothing illicit. Right. right. I, <laughs> I was really, and I, they, I don't think they make this anymore, but you know, at, you know, any Seven Eleven market or AMPM in those days, you could buy, there was this, uh, like weightlifters drink. It was like a 16-ounce grape, strawberry, and when it was all natural, no sugar, um, and it had tons of ephedrine in it. And that that was really one of my, aside from drinking a ton, gallons of coffee, uh, that was the thing that, that really pushed me. And I, I probably slept, I mean, I had crashes. But on average, I would sleep maybe 40 minutes to two hours a day, mostly in my car between classes and working newsstand gigs and anything else I was doing. So, um, you know, you're, you're basically working around the clock. You assumedly graduate with flying colors because this thesis sounds like you went all in and you committed to it. And I guess through the process of immersing yourself in this world, you then become fascinated by extension with the, the bookshop, the famous bookshop, Book Soup, that's on Sunset Strip. How do you wind up working at that store and how do you make that segue from the newsstand guy that's observing these activities as a student to then ingraining himself into this world of, um, you know, literature and, and bookstores in Los Angeles? Well, I, I made my way to book soup via the books, uh, via the newsstand world. Uh, there was a newsstand owned by book soup connected to the store right on the outside called news news. And, um, I thought that would be a great extension of my research, you know, different clientele in that part of town. And, and there was a lot of interesting um, content, not a whole lot that ended up making it in the, um, in the dissertation for, for whatever reason. But that led me to helping out with author events. And I 
quickly ended up becoming the marketing and publicity director of the store and hosting a thousand events a year with presidents, celebrities, literary icons, um, almost nine and a half years of doing that, uh, immersed me in the world of books and got me involved with a lot of publishers and authors. So when the owner of book soup died from pancreatic cancer in 2009 and the store was sold, that was my, that was my break. I was initially going to take a job with a major publisher in New York, but quickly got sucked back into just forming my own operation, which at the time was publishing select titles, but mostly doing marketing and design services for other publishers and authors and whatnot. I remember my first real season of Rare Bird, um, the roster of activities that we had were Chuck Palahniuk, Freddie Sinellis, David Mamet, and Carl Rove. Wow. Among others. So that was like the first five months of the services side of things. And, and we had one novel. And those guys are all giants that at that time, right? Just like underground cultural literary icons. They were, yeah. I mean, the reason I ended up working with those people right then is because I already had relationships with either the authors or the publishers prior to me leaving Book Soup. And when I left, a number of uh, people in the industry were just wondering, okay, well, didn't we have plans for the spring? I thought we were going to do this big event. <laughs> and that uh, that's a bit what of what motivated me to follow through with those obligations, aside from the fact that they were great and we could do really amazing things. So the, the store itself, is that still there, but just under new ownership? And you say the owner passed away. Was it sudden? Was it unexpected? And were you then faced with the situation of now I need to find a new job because this place is going to be bought out and my, my gig's gone? Well, Glenn died in uh, less than four weeks from diagnosis. So he died January 3rd, 2009. And it was really early December of the previous year that he uh, was, was diagnosed. I remember a couple months before that in October, he was complaining about his legs and what he thought were pulmonary embolisms. Um, but it all happened really fast. And myself, the accountant, and Glenn were really the institutional knowledge of the store at the time. So it was a bit disruptive uh, when that happened. And a few people stepped in to, to, to try and manage things. But for about 10 months, 10, 11 months, we, you know, it was kind of Lord of the Flies in certain ways. <laughs> I mean, we ran the store as, you know, people that were young. It, remind, and, it reminds me of that film, um, Empire Records. Totally. But, but obviously it, in a yeah, bookstore instead. Like so you must, you must have seen yeah, and experienced oh, some amazing stuff just in that time alone. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, this, it, I often describe it as the CBGBs of the book world. <laughs> and, and that's how we described it then. I mean, it was, I mean, we had um, staff 
sleeping over at the store because they were too hammered to go home. We had a huge iconic author stopping by uh, at eight or nine in the morning with bottles of Shivas to toast something or another. Um, I mean, it was a really wild, wild time. And you were aware in the moment that it was a special thing that you were a part of, because sometimes you don't know until afterwards, but you were aware in the moment, like this is a very exciting time and place to be. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And and without exaggeration, the, uh, a lot of the staff, especially in the marketing and publicity and events side, and this was a staff of a few dozen people, um, you know, uh, the biggest issue is that people didn't want to go home. So we were all always arguing with Glenn and, and other people that were running the store about who's on the clock and who's not, because, you know, people would work their allotted eight hours or 40 hours in a week or whatnot, but then we'd have so many amazing authors coming through and so many crazy things happening. Nobody would want to go home. Tell me the Hunter S. Thompson story that I was just reading about in this article. It says like the the art the article <laughs> well, starts. It's like you, Johnny Depp, Sean Penn, Benicia del Toro, and Hunter S. Thompson are all in the store upstairs because Hunter's about to do a book launch event or a signing, right? Well, I I I I'll tell some stories, but the you know this definitely needs a disclaimer. When that article was written. Um, a lot of the stories were, uh, distorted in a number of ways. I mean, I look back at it now, it's great lore. You know, a lot of it was heightened. It ended up being the cover story of, of the LA weekly at the time as the, as it, the intent was actually to profile five, six or seven independent bookstores in Los Angeles and our story ended up being just so uh, crazy with celebrity things and wacky, um, wacky times that it just ended up being a little bit more salacious, but there were definitely liberties taken by the journalist. Um, Certain things that definitely got me into hot water, but ultimately, you know, it is, it is what it is. The Hunter S. Thompson stuff is really interesting to me because uh, that was, um, uh, I, I think, October 18th, 2004. And it was three months before Hunter shot himself. And it was kind of like his last hurrah in a lot of, a lot of ways. His book was about sports journalism or sports columns which I'm not really a big sports person, so I, I didn't read it at, at the time. But the uh, that whole scene was just a full entourage roaming around town. I mean, I experienced it from the, the L.A. Uh, spot uh, of the tour, but uh, later when we worked with uh, Sean Penn, I got to hear some of the other stories from the times, um, <laughs> like when they were in New Orleans and, and whatnot, and... Uh, it was crazy, you know, it was just absolute mayhem, but, you know, Hunter, uh, from, from my memory was very, uh, very much in pain. I remember his leg being in serious pain 
and um, very similar to when we had Hulk Hogan at the store. And, you know, both of them just kind of had the same thing. When people were around them, they were exactly what you'd expect them to be. Lively, the caricatures of themselves. And then when people would leave, they would just deflate. Like the ener- their energy would just dissipate completely. It's heartbreaking when you hear stuff like that, isn't it? That they put so much of themselves into pleasing and performing and entertaining others. And then, as you say, when when the crowd's gone, they're just so exhausted. They just crash and collapse. And I mean, what an exhausting, tiring way to live your life. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I can't even imagine it. Um, but you know, I, I, I've obviously like everybody else, you know, heart went out to Hunter's family and all the people around him. Uh, and I was a lot younger then. I'm really disappointed that I didn't get to take, uh, him up on his offer to go out to Woody Creek. Oh man. He did invite you out there, did he? Yeah. He invited the, the whole store. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Ralph's house. I've been to Ralph Stedman's house. I went down there and recorded a podcast with him and he opened up I, his, I've heard it. his studio and he, you know, took me through all the years worth of work that he's done pre hunter with hunter after hunter. And, you know, he's pretty old now as well. And he wasn't the most engaged interviewee i think because he's just so old and over it but he was very sweet and very very accommodating and and really funny and i think the bit the bit that he enjoyed the most actually was doing the photo shoot with me he really started playing up then you sort of saw this youthful energy coming out of him but it was cool as well if you have heard it that music the song that he plays in the in the podcast that i left in and it's this long and low and it's this track that he's recorded with with recordings from Hunter in the song, like stuff like that. For me, I mean, Hunter has always been my favorite writer and he's the reason really why I probably studied literature at university and fell in love with storytelling is really because of him. Um, I'm, I'm jealous that you got to meet him and spend time with him and with Sean and Johnny and all that. So what's the Sean Penn connection then? Obviously Johnny Depp and sure. Benicio would have been in the film, which I'm sure would have been around that time perhaps, or was this a little bit after the film? Right. Well, there isn't a connection between uh, Hunter and why we later published the Sean Penn book, but but he um, was on that book tour you know with I, Hunter. You were saying, yeah, but you know, I, I remember uh, you know years later. This was maybe I don't know three, four, five years ago when I got a call from Sean's agent about his first book that we were, we were going to publish initially uh, before another publisher came in with more money and more attractive offer. But uh, I met with Sean in Malibu and, you know, one of the first things I said was, you know, Hey, we had, you know, I remember meeting you at, you know, with, with Hunter. I remember meeting you with uh, Christopher Hitchens and um, he nodded, but I don't, I don't, I don't think, you know, he remembered, uh, that interaction that I hold in such high regard, but, uh, <laughs> the, um, no, we just, you know, I think Sean heard from a number of people that we had a particular operation going on that, that might be right for his project. And, 
I, I do think, I, I think we're probably the perfect publisher for him in, in a number of ways. Um, I, we have another, another book with him that will happen hopefully in the next year or two. And is that another Bob you know, one? Is it another, is it the third installment of this series that he's been, been doing or is it something separate? Well, it's a, um, it's a visual book. So there it's, you go. it's a visual book with a lot of the Bob Honey stuff. And, um, you know, it's really up, up to Sean to decide what he ultimately wants to put in. But, um, um, you know, when we got together that first time, uh, over brunch and talked about what he wanted to do with everything. And, you know, I, that's where I remember bringing up initially that there should be a visual component because he had all these amazing stories about how while he was writing, aside from walking around laughing at his own jokes, uh, which is what I think every writer should do. Uh, he was doing these paintings and these collage pieces, these mixed media pieces. And I could tell immediately that they were aiding the creative process and it needs to be a part of it. Do you know why he was in a room with Hunter and, and Depp then? Why, why Sean himself was there? Was he just, you know, a fan and a friend of, of Hunter? Was that what put him in that room at Book Soup? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've heard from him on how they met, but you know, Sean has been a lot of places and done a lot of things, but ultimately one of the things that I respect about him is that he, um, he has a really powerful, uh, curiosity with him. He respects creative process. He is intrigued by people who create things. And I think deep down, like himself, I mean, he just wants to get into the minds of, uh, of other people and experience things. But, you know, I, I think once they become, became buddies, he, um, he, uh, really loved and respected him. I, I think I mentioned to you, uh, recently about the time this past September when we were on Sean Penn's book tour and we were in New York driving around after the event with Peter, uh, with Paul Theroux at the, uh, 92nd Street Y. And we were just bumming around, having a good time. And Sean said, wait, back up. And, uh, we backed up about a hundred feet or so and sitting at one of these classic New York pizza places where you grab a slice and sit facing the street was this guy that looked exactly like Hunter S. Thompson, but wasn't, I mean, it wasn't as if he was in a Halloween costume or anything. He just looked exactly like him. And we were all in like a, an Escalade or something like that. And we, stopped for a while, a few, like two minutes or so. And, uh, finally we ended up rolling down the window and Sean, uh, yelled out Hunter. <laughs> and then we tear it off like teenagers. 
he seems like he's a fun guy as well. Like, I think he's one of those people who gets a bad rep in the media um, because he's obviously very political and very engaged with activism and that kind of stuff. And I think he's maybe perceived to be a bit pretentious and serious and uptight. But actually, from the, the few things that I've heard and certainly having read his book, and, and his book's amazing, not the ones that he's written, but there's a book about him that's told through the eyes of all his actor buddies and creative friends. So it's people like Woody Harrelson and Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson, and they're all talking about Sean. And it seems like he's, you know, he's, he's partial to having a good time. He's got a good sense of humor. He seems like he's, you know, a very kind of like witty, funny dude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love people who can go back and forth between those two sides, you know, be really funny and, and, and life of the party type person to being someone who can take things really seriously. I mean, people that can change just on a dime are people that I really, you know, that's, that's an, a, a level of depth that I think is really hard to balance. Uh, and people that can do it are pretty fascinating. I'm with you on that. That's my favorite kind of person as well. Complicated, contradictory, multi-layered, the dream guests and the dream people that I want to be surrounded with. I love it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, so we're going to talk about Rare Bird now in more detail and you know what you've been sort of up to with that imprint and some notable releases over the years and then things coming up. Before we do, though, whilst all this is going on, Tyson, alongside your you know leap into the literary world, you still very much keep your feet anchored in the rock and roll world, don't you? And when you move to LA, you're doing music out there as well. You're playing in bands and you're keeping active and connected and integrated within all that world as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, creatively, I'm a musician. That's how I think. When I'm working with authors on their projects, I'm often using metaphoric language that comes from being a musician. Like, 
you know, if a manuscript is sloppy, I'll say, you know, I'm not going to go into the studio expecting somebody else is going to tune my guitar. And those analogies, you know, I think are pretty important, but that, you know, I mean, that's really how I think uh, from a creative point of view. Uh, I'm a book person first and foremost, but, you know, I love playing music. That's my outlet, especially in, in lockdown. You know, I've been working on a lot of material uh, in between working on audiobooks and, and other things. And, you know, that's, that's what keeps me sane, but it also, I think, provides a bridge between working with music people. You know, I, there are there are great people in book publishing that are musicians and great fans of music, but, you know, there are a lot more people that aren't. Well, I've spoke to a couple of people, not, you know, I haven't gone to them to talk specifically about you, but when I've mentioned that I'm doing this or they've seen that I'm doing this or they've heard... Joe Cardamone was somebody who messaged me the other day and he saw that I'd announced about my book and he's like, amazing, congratulations. He's like, I know Tyson, he's a really good dude. And that seems to be, I'm not just saying this to make you feel good about yourself, but you should know it. Everybody that I've spoken to within the music community seems to have like real respect for you. And I guess that's because they can see that you're authentic and you care and you know, you're, you're one of them. You're one of us, one of the good guys. That's really, that's really good to hear. Yeah, I love Joe. We're working on a, a pretty amazing project that we're not ready to announce yet. But when we do, uh, I think it'll be earth earth shattering. Yeah, we're I, we're almost the same age. I forget what month he was born in, but we're we're uh, very close. We've become, I think, pretty good buddies over the last number of years. And um, you know, just one of those guys where I feel like I've known him my whole life. So. I just transcribed my interview with him yesterday, actually, so it's fresh in my head, and I'd forgotten really how deep we went in with that one. I don't know whether you've heard that one yet, but it was a very revealing and insightful and, and quite moving conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really good bits in that that are going to be going into my book, but we'll get to that. Um, so you nearly played Ricky Rackman's Cat House, um, the grand sort of reopening of that famous sleazy Hollywood Rock and Roll Club, but the date that you were set to play that I was did. the the ninth of September in two thousand and one. So for obvious reasons, um, yeah, it didn't happen. Uh, what's your memory from from that day, being out west in America? Well, the in a few months earlier, in June of two thousand one, uh, that's when I put together this band with. Uh, a couple other buddies, Eric Stacy, who's the bass player in Faster Pussycat. This guy, uh, Stacy Blades, who was um, driving out from Florida to LA, coming from this band Rocks Gang with two X's. And at Obviously. the time, we didn't have a drummer. <laughs> we, yeah. And then we re- recruited um, uh, Vic Fox with, I think, two K's. Yep. <laughs> uh, very, all very motley crew, isn't it? And I was like this, I don't know how old I was, 19, something like that. And, and we were, it was kind of like, you know, those guys were cutting their hair and getting a little bit more Hanoi Rocks, uh, Backyard Babies style influence stuff, trying to get away from their hair metal stigmas. And it was at the same time that Ricky was trying to resurrect the, the cat house. And, and this was at, 
a, a, a pretty small place on El Centro in Melrose in Los Angeles. And uh, it was going to be a big, a big opening. And I remember being very excited. Uh, I mean, this is like a dream come true for me in a lot of ways. I'm playing with all these rocker guys that were older than me that I uh, liked their music, knew who they were. And, and here I was kind of like the kid in a candy store. And I remember, yeah, waking up that morning with my mother calling me saying, you got to turn on the news and thinking it was absolutely nuts. But it didn't occur to me that the world was going to change so quickly. Um, I was pretty surprised to be really honest with you. And I think I was just in shock, uh, cult, you know, as a participant of what was happening in the world. Um, and you know, when Ricky called it off, I remember thinking, what? That's 3,000 miles away and not really naively understanding the seriousness of everything. Um, but Ricky ended up rescheduling and I, you know, we did play the, play the cat house. Uh, oh, you did get to do it though. for tough. Yeah. Opening. I think we opened for tough with two F's. <laughs> <laughs> You remember that band? I and, don't know. Um, and then uh, three or four months later, we toured Japan, and that was just kind of an amazing time for me. I'd, I've never been to Japan. I really want to go there someday. It just seems like it's just a an alien world, you know, in every sense, culturally, just in terms of its layout. You know, you look at Tokyo; it just looks like you know something out of Blade Runner. It looks like such a wonderfully weird and amazing. Wow place and i do hope to go there someday soon when the world is allowed to travel freely once again um so rare birds where does the name come from is this entirely your brainchild well the uh it's, it's kind of an interesting story uh you know back in the book soup days there were a lot of jokes and just things that we would talk about one of which was and at the time I had started to grow this beard um, that was very ginger, and um, and I would joke that uh, I wanted to start my own bookstore called Redbeard's Rare Bird Bookstore. There you go, love it. And and then it was we were doing uh, a last event, uh, which I I think I mentioned to you that we did a lot of them back in those days uh, for iconic authors we did their last events and and one of them was john updike and i was hanging out with him backstage at the event signing books having a blast one of my favorite books of all time is rabbit is rich and um i have uh all these passages underlined and all these questions for him while we were signing a thousand books or whatever it was and uh my colleague ended up telling him that um, or mentioning the, the Redbeard's rare bird bookstore idea. And he said that, you know, that sounds like a great name for a bookstore, but whatever you do after, um, after book soup, you should incorporate that. And so when I left the bookstore, started to do my other things and it came down to naming the company, it just seemed like a no-brainer. I think it's just a really cool name as well that sums up, you know, what the uh, the whole kind of 
identity of the publishing house is all about. Um, you've mentioned a few books which you've put out already, um, notable ones. I guess let's focus in on the the music orientated books because I guess for the large part, uh, people who are listening to this will be more familiar with perhaps the the musicians and the musical figures. Um, so, what have been some of the the standout releases for you over the last few years that have you know just you know been really proud achievements for you to work with and have come out really well and and done really well and been well received? Oh well, there are, there are so many, and I you know I I know no matter how many I list, I'm gonna I'm gonna miss something crucial and somebody might possibly get upset. I mean, we publish a book a week. <laughs> yeah. Which, you told me uh, that the other day. I couldn't you know, believe it, but that's kind of standard. Is it? It is. Yeah. We've, we've published approximately 50 books a year for, uh, more years than we've been in business now. I think, um, you know, er, early on it was, um, uh, you know, we did, this memoir by the dead Kennedy's drummer, DH Poligro that I was really into the, both of the Keith Buckley novels, watch and scale. Um, as far as music is concerned, we have this, this new book by Chris Barrows of the punk band, the pink Lincoln called cheap shots. That's all this amazing photography, uh, from maybe the late seventies, definitely the early eighties, uh, until today where he would take disposable cameras to shows. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of punk bands, uh, lots of black flag descendants, uh, cramps, Iggy and the Stooges, but it also has some really interesting photographs of like you two in front of 30 people on their first tour. And the fact that Chris Barrows lives in Florida and shot, the majority of these uh, photographs there, it's just a really interesting perspective. I mean, a lot of the time you see these punk rock photo books where it's New York, LA, London, wherever. Yeah. And you definitely, you definitely see the bands acting differently in a B or a C tier city. You're a hundred percent right. You know, you have the bad, the bad brains playing basketball and, you know, it's just like, he befriended so many great people that, you know, if that was happening in Chicago or San Francisco, I don't think Chris would have had the opportunity. Well, all the tours that I've done, and I've done about a dozen now, you see how bands act differently in, as you say, the major cities, the New Yorks, the Londons, the LAs, because they know the industry are going to be there. There's pressure. They've also got a lot of friends there. The guest lists are always massive. They're distracted. They're stressed. And then when you get out to, like, as you say, one of these B or C towns, they're so much more natural and at ease. And if you're a journalist or a photographer or any of those kind of people and you're trying to capture or document an authentic moment with these people, then it's always much better to do it outside of the major cities. That's kind of actually why I, when I launched my podcast initially, I moved back home with my mum in Birmingham. Part of that was financially because I had to kind of, you know, save on not paying rent whilst I was getting the show off the ground. But another part of it was... I wasn't up against any of the other journalists for time, so I could get the 60 minutes that I wanted with a lot of the guests. Mm -hmm. And then also you're just getting them when they're a bit more natural and at ease um, in my hometown city, which was outside of the kind of the media pond of London. And I benefited so much from that for so long. So I can absolutely see from a photography point of view how being out somewhere like, you know, removed such as Florida would allow you to capture 
as you say, something which yeah. you just wouldn't see in one of those other cities and the bands themselves acting in a exactly. way that they wouldn't act. That sounds amazing. I love visual books as well. I really love photography books or mixtures of the two, um, you know, whether they tell the stories behind the shots or it's just the shots. Um, and then there's a couple that aren't out yet, but can we talk about the um, one of my favourite, I've never met him, but he just seems like the most bizarre and brilliant individual and character in music flacker from ramstein um has always fascinated me and <laughs> you've got a book coming out by him um can you tell us about that absolutely yeah this is long in the works uh, two and a half years ago or so this memoir was published in german to wide acclaim and um we acquired it for translation and it would have come out a lot sooner, but we just ran into so many problems with uh, the actual translation. We went through three translators and it's a, it's a pretty big book. It's like 130, 140,000 words. Um, and it, it coincided, it ended up coinciding beautifully with, the, the new stuff that Ram Ramsheen is doing, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that their European and American North American tours are postponed, but I, I do think they're going to happen. And it seems like they're in uh, a great position now, but yeah, this will be the, the, the first English translation of this remarkable story. And it'll come out early fall, late summer. Um, right now, uh, we are doing a, a vinyl audio book with another amazing musician uh, narrating the Flocke excerpts. And it's just really exciting. And, you know, to be completely honest, I, when, when Ramstein was uh, at their uh, beginning stages of putting out records and, and, being on charts and being popular, I of course knew who they were and heard them on the radio, but I, I never really followed them. I, I didn't buy any of the records. I wasn't that familiar, but now that I'm immersed in it, I'm just blown away that, I mean, they're, they're like a Brechtian circus traveling around the world. And it's pretty remarkable. The, doc the documentary on them made in America is amazing. And you should, I'm going to link you up via email with a good friend of mine called Dante Benuto. I'm not sure whether you know Dante or not already. Um, you should listen to the podcast episode I did with him, but he's head of A&R at Spine Farm Records. And he's the guy that signed Ramstein cool. in the UK um, many, many, many moons ago when nobody would touch them. And he brought them over here for the first time. And there's so many amazing stories that he's got because he's been with them since day one. Um, and he, you know, he works with Teal on his solo stuff as well. And he's one of the few people I think that's kind of been with that band since day one. And he's, he's a dear friend. And like yourself, he's somebody that really recognizes the specialness. Well, everybody now recognizes the unique talent and, you know, brilliance of Rammstein, but he was probably the first person outside of Germany to, to really see it. And he's been a big champion of them, um, ever since. So yeah, he's definitely someone that you should, you should get to know. Uh, and then the, the other one, um, a mutual again, connection between myself and yourself. We'll talk about Keith in a moment as well, because we have to, um, 
Jesse Hughes, old Jesse, Boots Electric, the mm. the weird, wild man that he is. Um, you've been working with him for quite some time, I believe, on uh, a special project. Can we talk to any extent about that? And do you have any idea as to when that might be seeing the light of day? We have been working on, on stuff. I, I don't think details are ready to release yet. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the biggest problem with uh, Jesse over the years uh, has been too many ideas, <laughs> <laughs> which has been great. And, um, you know, ultimately we've decided to uh, stick to what will probably be more of a traditional autobiography or memoir. Um, but I hope that we get to do some of the other crazy ideas as well. And, you know, I mean, Jesse is getting to know him. He's, he's a really interesting character. I mean, throughout the years, we've had so many um, mutual people in, in common, but it was, um, it was a, a roadie buddy who um, put us in, in touch and invited me over to Jesse's place in the middle of the night. Uh, with craziness ensuing, um, <laughs> no doubt. After after an, after a number of those meetings, um, you know, I think it. You know, there's a lot of the. No matter who it is, I mean, what celebrity or or not, there is uh, what we uh, describe as uh, you know, make sure they're relatively sane. Yeah, Rel- relative <laughs> being the key word. I mean, they could be sane or insane, but uh, reading between the lines, that's, can we work with it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and if not, is it worth, is it worth going down that, that road? But yeah, I really think that he has a, has a unique story to tell. And one of the, even though a lot has been told and there've been multiple documentaries going into detail, I think there's a side to Jesse that uh, a lot of people don't see that yeah he, i think he wants wants to share it i think people people you know for better or worse um would like to uh be clued into that world and i hope that he uh you know continues to be motivated and creating because he's a he's a remarkably talented person He's just a supremely, insanely intelligent individual as well, and such an encyclopedia of music. Like he's a genuine professor of rock and roll, and he knows so much oh, yeah. about so much. And he's a real kind of yeah. historian in so many ways of rock and roll, and and really like an interestingly kind of sensitive, sweet, genuine person behind the kind of two dimensional character that he projects out into the world which i've seen glances of over the years and gotten to know and yeah i think obviously with all of the awful stuff that happened with paris that's unfortunately overshadowed a lot of the other you know great qualities and as you say interesting details to that man's life and and his story um the colin hanks documentary mon ami was incredible and that did explore a lot of the eagles backstory as well but as you say there's so much more to Jesse that so few people outside of his circles, I think, have, have ever really seen. Um, so that's something I look forward to, for sure. Um, so the yeah. reason we got connected in the first place is because of Keith, and I want to give him a huge shout-out here on the show and, and just thank him publicly um, for being the best. And I have interviewed him a few times over the years. He's always been just 
I don't know, real. Like, there's there's real and then there's Keith Buckley real. And he is one of the most stand-up people I've met in music. Like, what you see is what you get. If he says something, he means it. And we did a great live Q&A together last summer. Uh, after that, we sat down and had a few drinks in a bar up the road. And we were talking about how we were going to do loads more. That's still the plan. Hopefully, um, you know, one day when shows are a thing again, we, we can look into exploring those avenues. But um, a big focus of the the Q&A was the books because I knew that people who were coming would, you know, have heard a lot of the musical anecdotes many times before, although we did try and uncover some new stuff as well. So I read both the books in the lead up to that live Q&A, uh, Scale and Watch, and just thoroughly enjoyed both of them. Thought he was such a gifted writer, such a great storyteller. Um, how did that initial, was it, was Scale first? Yeah. Yeah. How did yeah, scale, how, the scale came out first? How did Scale uh, come about? How did, you two, a, how did you two meet and how did that first book come about? I got a call from one of our authors, John Albert, uh, who also uh, was the marketing guy at Epitaph Anti. And he said, uh, hey, Tyson, I know, I know this sounds kind of lame, but uh, I got a musician that's on the roster. He's cool, don't worry. Uh, but, you know, he's got, I think, a novel. Uh, you're not obligated, of course, but, uh, you know, if you want to talk to him and he did. And the same, same thing that happened with Joe Cardamone, you know, once I started talking to Keith, it was, it was really like somebody I grew up with. I, you know, we're similar in age, have different paths in life, but you know, I mean, you just meet those, those people that you connect with and you, you don't necessarily feel like you need to explain um, a whole lot. You just get each other. And I, I felt that way about Keith. I hope he feels that way about me, but most importantly, the, the work material, once I started to read it, it's exactly what I, I initially envisioned publishing with rare bird. I mean, just the intersections of, of great real voice, which is extremely hard, hard to do. And, you know, regardless of what the narrative and what the story is, somebody that you wanted to just keep on reading and, and among many other attributes, that's one of the things that really intrigues me about Keith's output. I think that carries over into the music and in, in his lyrics and just his personality. Um, you know, he's just a, a guy that if he was reading the phone book, you'd want to listen to it. Yeah. And just a real kind of warmth to his personality. You can see that it's there and it's, I don't know, it's just somebody that you want to want to hang out with and, and spend time mm -hmm. with. He's a really good dude. Um, so thank you, Keith. So I want to ask you from a, <laughs> I hope it doesn't sound egotistical, but just out of a, a more, a curious point of view. Um, what was the, I guess the initial thoughts when you heard the show, which, was the show that I did with Keith the first thing that you heard from my podcast output? Assumedly, that was, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, I I was tipped off to the podcast because Keith was on it. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound out of the loop, but that was the first time that I'd heard of it. And I couldn't stop listening. Thankfully, you had... Uh, episodes galore by that time yeah and i could just <laughs> i could just listen and listen and listen and, and i loved it and so when when you and i ended up meeting 
you know, I, I kind of felt like I already knew you. <laughs> you didn't know me, but uh, I'd already listened to hours and hours and hours of your voice. And oh, you'd heard that many, had you? Wow. Oh, oh, no. I mean, I probably, I wouldn't be surprised if by the time I met you in London, I'd listened to 50 podcasts. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I would and, have just presume that you'd have maybe just heard, because you listed no. off a few people in the email to me of, you know, people like Joe, Keith, Jesse, either people that you've, you know, previously worked with or are working with or about to put something out with. And so I presumed I maybe he just dipped in on the ones that, you know, nope. there's mutual nope. connections there. I'm a genuine fan. And, um, you know, it, I, I thought it was extra cool that you responded right away, would meet on a few days notice at best and um on your birthday on my birthday i remember that yeah and and the and the same day that we were hours later going to see brian ferry at royal albert hall which was amazing yeah the last concert i saw i'm assuming that's the same with you same with me yeah and then it was the next week that the world shut down i mean it's wild isn't it that that seems like another lifetime ago now well we were we were supposed to go to paris two days later um, for some meetings and then fly back home from there. Um, but really within hours, uh, of us or hours of the show, um, in the middle of the night, you know, because the travel ban was announced and I just felt uncomfortable having myself and an employee possibly quarantined for weeks in, uh, in a different country. Um, we flew back immediately and, it was so strange because uh, at that time, I mean, I was expecting airports to be insane and just crowded. They were dead. Our flight was, was uh, you know, I mean, nobody was panicking. Uh, we got home just before all the, all the craziness started happening, and I'm very thankful for that. How long do you think it'll be before people are allowed to fly into Los Angeles if you had to kind of take a rough guess? Do you know? Well, I, I haven't been following the um, uh, the travel news, but I, I have had a couple authors fly in and out. So I, oh, I know go. flights are happening. Maybe they aren't internationally, but, you know, I just, I had an author fly back from, fly back to New York from L.A., recently so and they said it was great you know you get two two rows to yourself and coach (laughs) yeah i'll bet sprawl out reach out your legs um i've been cooking up some insane ideas for a for a book launch thing because my friend books the bands at the viper room so he's got free reign of that venue that's amazing it's funny you mentioned that because you know the viper room i mean that whole crew is um is very close to uh, us because the viper room is a block away from book soup no way. So and do you know Jeff Fioretti? Do you know Jeff? Of course. Yeah, so Jeff's, yeah, no, Jeff's he's, he's a dear a... friend of mine. I've stayed at his house a lot when I'm out in Los Angeles. Well, that's my I'll, guy. I'll, I'll send you some pictures uh, that, <laughs> that you'll probably be amused at. No, love Jeff to death. Also, uh, my buddy uh, Joe Metzakappa from Lady Sinatra ran the door for many, many years. And our other author, Jason Christopher. Right. Um, he, uh, you know, he goes, I think it, his cousin opened up the Viper room with another celebrity. And, but that, you know, just being right next to the bookstore 
world. I mean, I, I went to the Viper room after work five nights a week. Amazing. Well, that, <laughs> Just, that's absolutely where we should throw some kind of shindig to celebrate yeah. this thing. If it's still there. I mean, they, uh, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what's happening, but development is, uh, redoing that whole block. I hope it's still there. Well, we can dream. I've still got a book to write in the meantime anyway. Um, it's coming along well, boss. You'll be pleased to know. We'll talk about a few things relating to the book off air. Obviously, we don't want to now just go into a, a business meeting in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but I just I wanted to take a moment to, to say thank you to you on here um, so that everybody who listens to my show can hear how grateful I am to you for giving me this opportunity. Um, I don't think if you hadn't have come along and, and presented such an amazing and exciting opportunity to me than I would have been motivated in the way that I have been to develop this project. A friend of mine who's a musician said to me about a year ago now, he was like, you should turn the show into a book. It would be a really good thing to do because he was just putting out a book at that time. And I was like, yeah, but because I didn't have anybody interested in it, I didn't really have that motivation. And it's such a massive undertaking because there are so many episodes, you know, I've just been drowning in transcriptions for days now. And luckily I enjoy it because it's a fun thing. But yeah, I think I kind of just always thought, yeah, that would be a good thing to do, but I was never motivated to really make it happen. And then after meeting you and, and you kind of, you know, saying, I love the show, I think it would make a great book. I'm interested in working with you on it. Um, that's really kind of put a rocket up my ass and, and got me into gear to make this a thing um, and giving me the opportunity, especially at this point in time has been a godsend. So um, I'm really grateful and I want to say thanks. Well, thank you very much, Matt. I, I mean, it, from my perspective as a person that is always on the lookout for great and viable books to do is really a no brainer. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think it, it fits perfectly and I hope this is the beginning of uh, obviously multiple volumes, but I hope, you know, you have a great experience to the point where you want to do more books, maybe not just podcast related books, but other things. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm already cooking up a few ideas in the back of my brain as I, uh, as I tend to do once I get started and get excited. It's like, right, I'm off. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today as well. I know it's quite thank early you. over there where you are. This is the, the start of your day. So hopefully it's been quite a nice, you know, mental exercise to go all the way back down memory lane and, mm. and relive your life in 90 minutes. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I'm halfway through my day over here. I'm, I'm one of those crazy people that wakes up at four o'clock in the morning without an alarm and just wants to go. I was amazed at that when we had a toast the other week to the deal and it was about 8 a.m your time and you're like yeah this is pretty much my 5 p.m i've smashed out a day's work <laughs> i'm usually i mean i'm usually really by this time jumping on calls i'm really wired on on lots of coffee and and <laughs> for the people that are just waking up uh you know it it, it can be odd sometimes what song should we play out with I'm going to surprise you with a song to start the show. I like to play, obviously, little 30-second snippets. Uh, how would you like to go out, Tyson? I'm just springing this on you as well, so I ap uh, apologize well, for the curveball, but I thought I would uh, ask you in the moment, and then whatever comes to mind, we can 
we can play out with that. But yeah, uh, my book uh, is available for pre-order now. So if people are listening to this, want to get on that, there's a link in all the bios on my social media pages. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can also just Google Rare Bird Life in the Stocks or go onto rarebirdlit.com and find it on there. Uh, And until June the 16th, you can get 20% off uh, by typing in the promo code RB for Rare Bird, RB devotee 2020 so yeah please get those pre-orders in and make me look good for tyson so he wants to do more more books with me um Mm -hmm. that's i've just bought you some time then so you should have a nice track up your sleeve now tyson what are we going to play out with oh yeah i didn't need to think about it what i've had in my head since you and i last saw each other was a thrill of it all amazing uh i mean that that moment from the show when when all the old people rush the stage. <laughs> no offense, no offense. But that was real. That was really a brilliant moment. Mate, what a great talk. Thanks so much for everything. Likewise. And uh, here's to the future, dude. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.